So, Catalina Island is an island right off the coast. It's only 22 miles from LA, from San Pedro Harbor to Catalina, 22 miles, just right there off the coast of California. The population of Catalina, and you wanna know this, is over 4,000 people, but just barely. The island is 22 miles long and eight miles wide. And I love those days when you can see it from the beach. I just love it when you look out and you're like, there's Catalina. And sometimes it's so clear. And you can see the ridges of the cliffs. You know, you can see even the color, the brown, and uh, just the, uh, the crags. You can see where the isthmus runs through it. And you can trace the outline of the island with your eyes. And you feel like you could almost swim there. You ever have those days you're like, there it is, it's so clear. Now, there are other days when you are very hard-pressed to believe that there's actually an island out there. It looks like you're staring at an endless ocean, and you think that you are looking at a blank horizon. But there are all sorts of things. Catalina's still there. I just want you to know that. But there are all sorts of things that can obscure our view of Catalina. A cloudy day like today, you go down there, you're not going to see it. Storms will obscure our view. Smog. It'll just look like a big haze out there. Sometimes it just looks like maybe it's another cloud formation. But that can happen because we're looking for it in the wrong place or, or maybe bad vision. Last Sunday morning, in my neighborhood, we had a power outage at 5.04. I know because I looked at the clock and said, you know, I could sleep for 26 more minutes and all of a sudden, my clock went blank, and you know the electricity went out, and our smoke detectors thought it was a fire. And it was going, fire, fire, fire. Okay, it's totally pitch black in my house. Brian is just getting over a cold, and you know, men who are getting over colds or have colds are sometimes a little cranky. And he's got to preach that Sunday, and here it is, like, Fire, fire, and you know, that noise is so blaring. So the first thing Brian does is he gets out of bed. He has a little flashlight. I've got a wind-up flashlight, and I've got my wind-up flashlight, and I'm going into the bathroom, and I'm putting on my contacts, and I'm turning on the shower, and I'm setting it next to the shower so I have some light to, you know, wash by, and he's going around checking for fire in the house. Then he's trying to figure out how to turn off the smoke detectors. And he's got a stepladder and this little tiny flashlight going around. You know, and by this time it's, you know, 5.30 and he's trying to, to figure it out. So then, they're still blaring. I put earplugs in so I can deal with this and still put my makeup on with my, with my um, flashlight. Let's wind up. So, you know, this is how it is. It starts to, to dim and I'm like... And I'm thinking it's just absolutely comical. It, it really is. It's, it's horrid, but it's comical. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you're either going to get mad or you're just going to laugh, like, ha, 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 ha. So I just, I did, you know, especially seeing Brian on the stepladder with the flashlight trying to figure out what's going on. It was funny. So finally, we have to, the electricity's still out. We have to go on YouTube, you know, with our little uh, computer. We go on YouTube, and I'm looking up how to stop smoke detectors. 
Now, by this time, like I said, it's 5.35. At least I'm clean. I've got my contacts in. And I'm, I'm trying to look up. And I, you know, I thought it was the dim light and everything, but I'm trying to look up how to dismantle. So he realizes that you know, he was trying to turn it or slide it, but you have to turn it, then slide it, remove the batteries. He had to take all seven smoke detectors down, all seven on Sunday morning. So he takes the smoke detectors down and the lights come back on and he gets in the shower and the doorbell rings. By this time, it's a quarter to five. And I go to answer the door and it's two policemen. And they're like, we, we heard there's a disturbance here. One of your neighbors called. And I looked at him, I said, we have great neighbors. We have the best neighbors. I mean, neighbors that care about you and say, you know what? That alarm's going off. Could you please check their house? Because we're scared. We're not going to check it just in case it is burglars. So they said, it's, we, we checked and it's not your burglar alarm. It was, you know, something else. I said, it's my smoke detectors. For some reason, the power failure sent them into overdrive. And I said, but you know what? I am so thankful for you. It is so nice of you to come out to this neighborhood. You are making me feel so safe. And they're like, oh, ma'am, you know what? It's our job. <laughs> and I said, well, I am very, very thankful. I said, thank you for coming out at five, you know, 5.45 on a Sunday morning to check on us. And I'm totally dressed. I've got my hair up. You know, I look good. Thank you for coming. I always look this way at 5.45 in the morning. Of course, I really thought I looked good until the lights came on full flash. But... Uh, but it was so funny, you know, because I felt pretty accomplished. Like, look what I did in the dark. So we get to church and Brian's not feeling well. So between services, I decide to go and get him some, some juice. Um, and I'm in the car and I'm like, wow, nothing's very clear. I cannot, you know, I can't see the signs from far away. And I realized I put my contacts in the wrong eyes. <laughs> yeah, so much for wind up flashlights at 504 while your smoke detector's going off. But my, my, my sight was off because my vision was off because I put the contacts in the wrong eyes. So I couldn't have seen Catalina if I wanted to that morning. But things like that can keep us from seeing the reality of what really is. The reality of what really is. Because Catalina really is. It's there, whether you see it or not. Her longitude and latitude have not changed. It's not like, oh, we moved Catalina last night. Sorry. It's still there. Her residents are still very much alive and very active. She is still the same shape. She maintains her topography. Topography, And when I consider Catalina, I am reminded of God's promises. Sometimes God's promises are so clear. They seem so close that I can reach out and touch them. Isn't that true? Other times, I can trace them, the outline in my life, and I can see, oh, yes, here it is, and I can see where we're going with this. Sometimes I can see the depths or even feel the depths and the heights of the promises of God. I'm reveling in them. I'm anticipating their fulfillment. And the first time when you receive a promise, because God has promises for all of us, do you remember the quickening of your pulse? And the thought, I think this is God speaking to me. You know that? Where you feel God's hand taking a promise, maybe in a song, maybe in a scripture reading, maybe from the pulpit coming through a Bible study, maybe from a friend. And you feel God taking that very promise and applying it to your heart. It's thrilling and slightly 
unnerving, isn't it? Because now you've got to exercise faith. God is putting your name on a promise. You're almost afraid to acknowledge that what you know in your heart to be true is God actually promising to move for you and to work on your behalf. I have a, a friend, and when she was 15 years old, she had a boyfriend. Her husband calls him Cheapskate Chris. But that was her boyfriend for years. And um, she was at a retreat, 15 years old. And the Lord spoke to her and told her she was going to marry uh, this guy that she knew as a friend. And she wrote it in her journal at 15. And she kind of laughed as she wrote it out. But she just wrote it out. And she was dating this, this guy, cheapskate Chris, for five years. And um, they'd been dating for five years when cheapskate Chris broke up with her. And she was absolutely crushed. But at the same time, she'd become friends with um, this other guy, Michael, whose name she'd written in her journal, but she'd forgotten about the journal entry. Totally forgotten. And she started having feelings for Michael and thinking, boy, are, are these real? Can, can this really be? And Michael took her to see the house that he wanted to buy. And she looked at him and she said, why do you care what I think about the house you're going to buy? He said, because I want you to live in it with me someday as my wife. And she said, well, that's a different matter. <laughs> but then she needed confirmation. And she happened to be looking through her journals. And there she saw the promise of God dated when God said, you're going to marry Michael Higgins. What an amazing God we serve. But there are times when the promises seem to disappear from our view. And we wonder if we ever really heard from God at all. We doubt ourselves. We doubt the promise. And it disappears from our view. It is obscured. And if we see it at all, it's just a dim outline that seems more ethereal than substantial. Or else it seems miles and miles and miles and years and eons away from us. Then suddenly, when we least expect it, we look out on the horizon and there it is. The promise of God shining in all its glory, closer than we expected, or maybe in its very fulfillment, you are literally standing on the shores of Catalina Island. Let me say this. The promises of God are constant. They are always there. They don't disappear. They don't change in longitude or latitude. They are consistent they are constant. They are as they have always been. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Elizabeth said to Mary in Luke 1, 45, blessed is she who believed for there will be a fulfillment of those things promised to her by the Lord. It's the same promise. It's the same shape, the same surety, but what mars our vision? What keeps us from seeing it? Well, sometimes it's clouds, isn't it? It's just the normal events of life. Just some days are just cloudier than others, and it's harder to maintain our faith and just to believe. Other times it's storms. It's the upheavals that seem to put the promises at a distance or make them seem absolutely impossible to be fulfilled. 
Other times it's smog. It's the pollutants in the environment. It's the sin. And then sometimes we're looking in the wrong places. Our own schedules for God's promises to be fulfilled is the wrong place to look. Lord, you've got 10 minutes oops, to fulfill that promise. You've got a half an hour. I give you a month. And God says, you know what? I make all things beautiful in my time. And we're looking in the wrong place. Or we're looking at our own ways of having it fulfilled. And we're looking down the wrong roads when he's coming in the air. One thing I have come to expect from God is the unexpected. You know, I used to be better at prayer because I used to give God directions. And so my prayers took longer, you know, because I, you know, down the street, three doors over, make a left, take a right. Kind of like Brian, when he's driving, how we work together. I, from the passenger seat, I'm helping him. I don't know why he doesn't enjoy it more. But, you know, I used to give God directed prayers, exactly what he needed to do in everybody's life and when. And now I'm realizing that he does something exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or think. He's got a different way, an unexpected way, where sometimes you look back and you go, wow, that was better than my suggestion. That was better than my prayer. Oh, how thoroughly you did that, Lord. God has the best way, Oswald Chambers said, of doing things. And when I am looking for the expected or the natural or the normal, rather than for the God way, I can't see the promises of God. Sometimes it's, I'm simply not in the right place to see the promises. You can't see Catalina from ground level in Santa Ana. You need a higher perspective or a closer vantage point. We cannot see the promises of God until we are near God. We need an uplifted perspective. Sometimes we cannot see the promises because we are looking down. And so God lifts our head as the psalmist says in Psalm 3, 3, that he lifts our head so that we can see the promises. Sometimes, again, it's bad vision. We've got our contacts in the wrong eyes. And the vision is marred by our own doing. We thought we were doing so well in the dark, only to learn we should have just cleaned our glasses and put them on. But we need to be looking for the promises. We need to be scanning the horizon constantly. Like Elijah's servant, looking for the cloud of rain. And when Elijah heard that there was a small cloud the size of a man's hand, he began to rejoice because he knew the fulfillment of the promise was coming. The men and women that we studied this week were those who were given the promises of God. And at times in their life, 
Those promises must have been so clear and other times so obscured. And isn't that how the promises of God are? They go in and out of focus, in and out of sight. Sometimes we see them and sometimes they're hidden. I think of the days that these men lived in and all the responsibilities and events. At times, those promises must have been so exciting and so close. And other times, they were totally obscured by hardship, oppression, busyness, threats, battles, distance, wilderness. Today, we read their story. And we often disdain these Israelites for their unbelief. Because we read about the plagues on Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the miracle of the daily manna, the water bursting from the rock, the victory over enemies, the cloud cover by day and the pillar by night. And we think, wait a second, how could you doubt God's faithfulness? We can see it. We can trace it in their lives. But we fail to trace God's faithfulness in our own life. We fail to look back and simply connect the dots of how God has been absolutely faithful. What if our lives were written and people were reading ours? They'll be like, that dumb Cheryl, what was wrong with her? Look how God faithfully came through for her every single time. And yet she got to that trial and she's like, oh, Lord, are you going to come through? Can you work through this? Is that how our biography will read? Probably so. Sorry. We are so like them. Our lives are filled with miracles. God has been faithful to each one of us. We all have our own testimonies of God working in our lives. Plagues. We have seen God lifting our oppression and putting the oppression that the enemy gave us back on the enemy's camp. Pressing them, pressing them until they have to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. God has parted Red Seas. He has made a way where there was no way. All of us have come to those places and said, Lord, there's no way through this one. And God has parted the Red Sea. We have all experienced the manna, God's provision, God's miraculous provision. I bet each one of you has a testimony of God's provision in some unique and precious way. Water from a rock, the place of refreshment where you didn't expect it. Out in the wilderness where God, in those times of of wilderness where you feel so dry and God suddenly refreshes you by his word, victory and his covering and his guidance. So let's consider what these men and this woman experienced when they saw and when they couldn't see the promises. Let's begin with Perez. I say Perez. You can say it any way you want. The promises probably seemed very close to him. He was born in Canaan, a land of promise, but he lived like a foreigner. His mother and father lived in the same home but had no relationship. He went through famine, shortage of grain, and maybe at this time the promises were a bit obscured. His father and uncles traveled to Egypt to buy grain, and there was word that his father Judah was treated roughly by the prime minister of Egypt, and at this time everything must have been so cloudy, those promises of God. His father returns a second time with great news. Uncle Joseph 
is the prime minister of Egypt. And they're all going to move to Egypt where they will be treated like royalty, given their own property in the land of Goshen, where they can continue to tend sheep and they will never, ever hunger again. Oh, at that time, the promises must have seemed so close. He was moving to Egypt. He was set up by his uncle and he was about to enjoy the greatest prosperity of his life. And he was going to be with his whole family. Perez has a son named Hezron. Hezron is living in Egypt and probably continued in the prosperity because of Joseph. Joseph might have died during the lifetime of Hezron. Yet Joseph is still remembered and revered in Egypt for saving the nation and population of Egypt. And the promises all seemed very plausible. If they're cloudy, it doesn't matter because they're still they're still plausible. You know, when you've got resources and when you've got avenues that you can go down, you're like, oh God, this is an easy one. I'm sure you're going to come through. It's when those resources dry up and those avenues that we think we're going to travel down, those roads become closed to us that we're like, oh Lord, I don't know how you're going to come through on this one. Isn't it true? It's when we can no longer trust ourselves in our own strength. So at this point, Hezron can still see possibilities. He could envision a return to Canaan. They're very rich. They're very successful in Egypt. His family is growing. They're all together. They're very secure in the land of Goshen. But he has a son, Ram. And during this time, things begin to change in Egypt. Ram probably felt the growing disfavor of the government toward him. And Joseph, his, his relative, who was revered and respected, began to be forgotten. And life became more laborious. This could even be the time when some of his family was conscripted into labor services for Egypt. And the promises at this time would be distancing themselves. And yet still, perhaps, visible at times. He has a son, Aminadab. By this time, the hardship must have begun. The Israelites are made to build the elaborate tombs and edifices of the Egyptian empire. His daughter would marry into the clan of Levi, Aaron, Moses' brother. And though there was no priesthood as yet, the promises, the promises would be almost non-existent. No priesthood. No, no spiritual well from which to dry. During his time, Egypt was excessively oppressive. Threats to his children and grandchildren, the midwives, were instructed by the Pharaoh to kill every male child of the Israelites. The promises of God would be faint, if not invisible, all disappearing from view. The Hebrew people were on the verge of distinction because of the disfavor of the Pharaoh. But he has a son, Nashon. And during Nashon's lifetime, the promises of God would be revived. Though there were cruel and harsh taskmasters when Nashon began his life when he lived in Egypt. Moses arrived on the scene and he brought the promises of God back 
into sight to the people. Moses promised the people that God was going to deliver them from Egypt and take them into the promised land. And the people got so excited about these promises. It became totally visible until Pharaoh ordered the taskmasters to go harder on the people of Israel. He said, they've got too much time on their hands. Make them gather their own straw for the bricks. Make them work longer hours. And suddenly the people of Israel were upset with Moses because the promises disappeared and all they could see was the arduous labor that they were required to do for Pharaoh. The Israelites were even called lazy. But Moses comes back and he calls down plagues from God upon Egypt. First, water is turned to blood. Next, frogs, lice, flies. And with each plague, the promises of God become a little clearer. And then when the disease is on the animals of of Egypt, God makes a distinction between the Israelites' animals and Egypt's animals. Egypt's animals are plagued. But Israel's animals are safe and escape the plague. Next comes boils upon the Egyptians. But we're told no boils for the people of Israel. Hail on the crops of the Egyptians. But no hail in Goshen where the Israelites are dwelling. Locusts again on the crops of Egypt. But not on the crops of the Israelites. Darkness, an eclipse in Egypt but we're told they had light in Goshen. And then finally, the last plague, the Passover, the death of the firstborn of any house that was not covered by the blood of the lamb. Nashon would have experienced the very first Passover of God's promise and God's protection and God's passing over and then God's deliverance. Nashon would have been one of those who would have heard the news. It's time. It's time. Get everything together. We're marching out now. Nashon would have gathered his whole family. Maybe put all that they owned on carts. Nashon's neighbors would have said, please just go away. We'll give you our gold. We'll give you our silver. Just get out of Egypt. You're ruining our lives. Nashon would have marched with all of Israel, and he would have camped on the shore of the Red Sea between two mountain cliffs. Nishan would have seen the Egyptian army barreling down upon the Israelites that were helpless with their family, with their old, with their infirmed, with all their stuff and their children, totally vulnerable. Nishan would have seen the cloud of God that was covering them go between the Egyptians the Egyptian army and the children of Israel and to the Egyptian army be an obscure cloud and to Israel to give light. Nishan would have been there when Moses would have stretched the rod out over the sea and he would have watched the water part and roll back into walls and the ground, a path, dry up all the way from Egypt to the Sinai Peninsula. And he would have been one of those who would have crossed with his whole family on dry ground. 
And then when he got to the other side and he turned and he looked at that path through the Red Sea that he had just crossed, he would see the cloud lift and the armies of Egypt enter into that same sea. But Moses' rod would go forth and the sea would close on the Egyptians. And he would see the army discomfited, rendered helpless before Israel. And the next thing, there would be no army, but only floating parts of chariots. This is what Nishan would have seen. And as he crossed the Red Sea, no doubt, as Miriam picked up the timbrel and began to dance and sing, and Moses sang the song of deliverance, the horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Oh, he would have rejoiced And the promises of God would seem so clear. But then, as he traveled on and realized this was going to be a rather long camping trip, and he went to a place of bitter water, he would begin to grumble at the bitter water. But Moses would receive a sign from God of a tree. And Moses would take that tree and put it on those bitter waters and the bitter waters would be made sweet and the promises of God would come into view. Then he would camp at a place that had 12 palm trees. It was like a resort and the promises of God would be so clear. But then as his stomach began to rumble and get hungry and he didn't want to kill all of his livestock, he would begin to doubt those promises until God rained down the manna. And six days a week, that manna consistently would rain down from heaven. And he could collect, or his wife probably collected, exactly the amount due for the family. He would see water in the wilderness come gushing out of a rock. He would experience victory over Amalek as Moses' arms were raised to the Lord. And then Moses would disappear on a mountain and he would watch the people around him begin to lose hope, begin to lose sight of the promises of God and step into idolatry. Aaron would collect their earrings and their gold and he would make a calf and he would tell Israel to worship this golden calf. Moses would reappear with the commandments of God and call judgment on the people. And many of those he knew would be slain. And at that time, no doubt, the promises would begin to recede because of the sin of Israel, because of those he knew. Will we really get into the promises of God? Have we blown it to such a point that God will renege on his promises and say, you know what? I'm going to give them to somebody nicer, somebody better. But then the promises would come back into view when Moses returned again with the law and with plans for the tabernacle. Nope. They would be the people and the tribes of Israel would be organized and the tabernacle would be assembled And the priesthood would be established and God's presence would be manifested in the tabernacle. And oh, the promises of God would become so clear. They would come right to the edge of the promised land where across the Jordan, they could see the promised land of God. 10 spies would be, I'm sorry, 12 spies would be sent into Canaan. 
to tell them about the land. Oh, they were about to go in. The spies were there. And the spies would return. And 10 of the spies would say, indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey. And here is some of its fruit. And they would see the great produce, the grapes that came from the land God was promising. But the spies would continue. However, the people living in the land are strong and the cities are large and fortified. We saw the descendants of Anak there. And they would testify that against the descendants of Anak, they looked and felt like grasshoppers. And the multitude would begin to grumble. And the promises of God would begin to recede. You brought us all the way here. And, and you're going to destroy us by the giants. We can't go into the promises. We can't step into those. The people are afraid. Too many enemies. Enemies too strong. You know, the children of Israel hadn't seen the people of Anak. These 10 spies, 12 spies had seen them. Joshua and Caleb saw the same men and said, no, they're nothing, not compared to our God. But 10 looked at it and said, "Uh uh-uh. And they came back. And it was not the reality. It was the imagination of the people. You know, sometimes our imagination is our worst enemy, isn't it? We paint the worst, scariest, ugliest scenarios. And sometimes the scenarios that are painted in our mind by the devil are much worse, much more terrifying than the reality. Because the reality is God gives us the grace to walk through it. And our imaginations sometimes are lacking that grace. Is that not true? It's true. Thank you. (laughs) Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, have a different take. Of course, this is all found in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And Joshua and Caleb say, we must go up. We must take possession of the land because we can certainly conquer it. The land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. These two see the promise so clearly. And they said, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord and don't be afraid of the people of the land for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the people chose fear over faith. And they threatened to stone Moses because they did not believe that God would take them into the promises. And they began to doubt the very promises of God. God judged these people for their unbelief and rebellion. And wouldn't let them go into the promised land. Now the promises must have seen so far off to Nashon. The Israelites mustered an army and they tried to presumptuously go in and take the land. But they were repelled. And they had to turn and walk in the wilderness for 40 years. But even in that wilderness experience, God continued to sustain them by the manna. And their shoes and clothes miraculously did not wear out. But a whole generation, those who crossed the Red Sea as adults, died, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua. And Nashon also died in the wilderness. But he had a son, Salmon, 
And Salmon was either a child when the Red Sea was crossed, or perhaps he was even born in the wilderness. He had been weaned and raised on the manna from God. He had been camping his whole life with the tribe of Judah. He had awakened every morning to the cloud of God's covering. And every night he had gone to sleep with the comforting pillar of God's fire guarding the camp. He had witnessed some of the effects of Israel's rebellion from Korah being swallowed up by the earth. Miriam receiving leprosy when she spoke and gossiped against Moses. Snakes in the camp when the people complained about God. But he had also seen the defeat of the great kingdoms of Og and Sihon. He had seen Balaam at the top of the mountain overlooking Israel, try to curse his people and the tribes of Israel only to utter blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And you know, it must have been interesting. He was like, wait, there's that little guy up there again. And he's blessing us again. Oh, wait, he moved. He's over there. What's he doing? Oh, he's blessing us. Oh, he's over there. What's that guy doing? Who is that guy? And when Balaam tried to curse and the king, Balak moved him from place to place, Balaam could only bless the people of God. He had seen the seduction of many of the men of Israel by the Midianite women. And the promises at that time must have been in doubt, covered by smog. Moses died. And it was the loss of a leader and a leader so strong, so sure like Moses. Maybe the promises seemed in jeopardy, but then Joshua is raised up and Joshua begins to take charge. And they look across the Jordan and they see Jericho. It's a fortified city and it must be conquered before the rest of Canaan can be claimed. And so Joshua sends spies into Jericho, and there they meet a woman named Rahab, a woman who is a Gentile, but she can see the promises of God so clearly. Isn't that how it is sometimes? Those in darkness often see the promises more clearly than those who are in the light. They can see the difference in you. I remember being in high school, and this girl, she, we, we called her a druggie because we just kind of labeled the fieldies. They were the druggies. And I remember she came up to me one day, just out of the blue, and she says, what is it with you? And I'm like, I don't know. She's like, no, you shine. You and your friend, you shine. I know, I smoke pot. I can see when people shine. <laughs> you totally shine. Why are you shining? And I said, because we've got Jesus. And she's like, I want Jesus. And I'm like, okay, can you go to Calvary on Monday night? Can you go to my church with me on Monday night? Yes. So we brought her to church. She could see what we couldn't see. We were just Christian girls who felt ostracized from the rest of high school. We ate in the front of Harbor High where the, the socius, they ate in the quad and criticized one another. And the Lodis were out on the field behind and Joanne moved from the Lodis to the front of Harbor High with the believers. In fact, we had other, other kids who could see the promises of God. 
and would join us on the front of the lawn of Harbor High. Sometimes it's those outside that can see that God is being faithful to you. They can trace it in your life. Even when you can't trace it, even when you can't see it, they're saying, look, I heard, I heard about the plagues that fell on your enemies. I heard about how God parted the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army because he loved you. It might've been a long time ago, but it reached my ears. I heard about how the kingdoms of Og and Sihon fell before your God and before you. And I'm terrified of that God that you serve, but I believe in him and I want to be on his side. And that's exactly what happened with Rahab in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. She told these spies, I believe, I believe. And she helped these spies out. And it was as if she was saying, what do I need to be saved? Please save me. And they said, if you put this red cord, the very one that you've lit us down, that you're letting us down the wall with in your window, then you will be saved. But you've got to gather all your family and everyone you want saved into your house. This prostitute, this innkeeper was saved because of that red cord. Rahab covenants with the spies for her life and her family's life. And she's instructed to hang the red cord from which the spies escaped in her window. Now, Nashon would have seen the great impediment of the Jordan River. Here's an impediment to all the promises of God. Yes, I can see them, but they're still far away. But what happens? God speaks to Joshua and says, have the priests take the Ark of the Covenant, have them step into the Jordan River. Well, Nashon looks and the Jordan River is overflowing its banks. But he watches. He watches as the priests carrying the ark, the poles of the ark of God on their shoulders begin to step into the Jordan and suddenly the Jordan River recedes and it's dry ground large enough for all the children of Israel to cross over as the priests hold the ark in the middle of the Jordan River dried up. So the children of Israel could cross over and they camp in a place called Gilgal and they celebrate the Passover there and they eat unleavened bread from the grain they find in the land and they eat at the produce of the land. Oh, the promises right now are we're eating them up. They are so there and the manna ceases. And God instructs Joshua on how to conquer Jericho. He's to march around the city every day for six days. No talking among the soldiers as they march. The priests are to carry the ark and the other priests are to blow the ram's horns. But on the seventh day, they're to march around the city seven times. And the priests are to blow the trumpets and the people are to shout because the Lord will give them the city. And so the people do exactly as Joshua instructs. And on the seventh day, as the people shout, the walls of Jericho fall down. And Joshua and the Israelites conquer Jericho, but Rahab and her family are saved. And she is saved because she heard and believed and embraced the promises of God. 
In fact, we're told in number, uh, in sorry, Joshua chapter six, verse 25, that Rahab is even inducted into the camp of Israel. The writer says, and she lives here with us. You could go ask her about these things. It's almost as if he's saying that. She was there in the camp of Israel. But not only that, she marries Salmon, and she has a son named Boaz. We hear again about Rahab in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew 1.5. Not only was she inducted, accepted into Israel, but she's married into the promised line, and she gives birth to Boaz. And she is the great-great-grandmother of David, the king. And she is held up in the New Testament as an example of faith, and she is mentioned by name, written in to the very lineage of Christ. But Hebrews 11.31 tells us of her faith. She's held up as an example of faith. Not only is her name written, not only is she inducted, not only does she marry Salmon and and become the great-great-grandmother of David, but she's held up to us as you need Rahab's faith. She's our example, dressed like this woman dresses. Wear what she wears. Years ago, I was doing a communion service and this woman rushes up to me and she goes, Cheryl, I've got to tell you something. And I'm like, could it wait? I'm doing communion. She's like, oh, okay. And she sits down. This is at a Vista retreat. And afterwards, she said, Cheryl, I got to tell you, I came to the Lord and she said, you know, I, I wasn't raised by Christians. I always dressed kind of seductively trying to get men's attention. And she said, one day I'm at church. I feel totally convicted about the way I'm dressed. And you walk by and God said, dress like her. She's a godly woman. And she said, I'm like, Lord, how am I going to do it? And the Lord just spoke to her that he was going to supply. She said that week her parents gave her $40. She went to a thrift store and she said, and I've got a wardrobe just like yours. (laughs) And I'm thinking I'm shopping in the wrong place. You know, we're to dress like Rahab. God is holding Rahab up and saying, dress like her. Be a woman of faith who embraces the promises of God. And we're told that because she embraced the promises of God, she bore fruit. Her actions were all because she believed the promises of God. You see, when you believe the promises of God, you're a totally different person than when you're doubting the promises of God. When you're doubting the promises of God, you know what you are? You're a striver. Yeah, huh? Yes, you are. You're a fretter. Fretters are hard people to be around. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. You know, fretters scare me because I'm afraid I'm going to catch it. Start fretting too, because fretting is contagious, isn't it? But we want to be like Rahab, who believed and then acted on the promises of God. And her actions saved God's people. Her actions saved. Her actions saved her family, and her actions brought victory to Israel. I just heard a story this week of a woman who was um, kidnapped by um, terrorists, and they sought to crucify her. 
and they, they pierced her hands through, and she was bleeding. But the officers, um, the Navy SEALs, picked up a signal on her phone, and they followed that signal, and they found her, and they were able to exterminate the terrorists and to stop a terrorist cell. And while she's bleeding and kind of going in and out of consciousness because she's a Christian, one of the Navy SEALs showed her her phone and said, it was worth it. It was worth it. You have saved people. Rahab, because of her faith, she acted on that faith. And faith will always move you to action. When you see the promises, you're like, I'm going to catch a boat and go to Catalina today. When we see the promises, we have hope. We inspire others to hope in the promises. All these men were given the promises of God. Even when they couldn't see him, God fulfilled his word just as God will fulfill his promises to us. Why? Because we're told in scriptures, God cannot lie. If it wasn't true, God wouldn't say it was true because he does not lie. Secondly, God is absolutely faithful. We're told that God is faithful, Paul says, and cannot deny himself. It's who he is. Not that he acts faithfully, though he does. But because he is faithful, he acts faithfully. And then God has put these promises in his unfailing word. God has also already proved his promises to us in a myriad of ways. He has come through for each one of us. He has spoken to each one of us through his word. He has provided for all of us. He has answered our prayers in amazing ways. He has allowed us to feel his presence and he has guided us through life. But God has even more promises to us. And sometimes they are so clear, we are absolutely sure of them. We can almost taste their fulfillment. Then suddenly they seem to disappear from view. George Mueller, a man who built orphanages, in England and housed and fed over 10,000 orphans once wrote, you will never learn faith in comfortable surroundings. God gives us the promises in a quiet hour. God seals our covenants with great and gracious words. Then he steps back and waits to see how much we believe. Then he lets the tempter come and the test seems to contradict all that he has spoken. It is then that faith wins its crown. That is the time to look up through the storm and among the trembling, frightened seamen cry, I believe God that it shall be even as it was told to me. It is times when we cannot see the promises that gives us the greatest opportunities to grow and be strengthened in faith. Romans 8, 24, Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope. If you can see it, you don't need to hope for it. You don't need to exercise faith. Faith is when everything looks opposed to what God has promised. And this is when our faith is tested and becomes greater in value than gold. 
as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you hold on to the promises of God, even in the dark, even when you can't see Catalina, that is when your faith is being purified, refined, and gains its greatest value. Isaiah 51, 10, God says this, who amongst you, who amongst you, who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. God's promises are true, whether you see them or not. They are substantial, unmoving, unwavering, constant, unfailing. Some days I am so sure of God's promises. Others, I am wondering if I heard it wrong. But I have learned to cast doubt behind me and hold on tight when I can see and when I can't see. How do I hold on? I hold on, one, by remembering who God is, that he is powerful, omniscient, righteous, eternal, always present, and caring. I hold on to him so tightly. And remember that these promises are predicated on him and not on me. Secondly, I hold on because of his unfailing testimony. He has never, ever failed. His word has never failed. In my own life, God's word has never failed. Yes, there are days when we can see the promises as clearly as Catalina on a clear, crisp day. But faith is rewarded when we hold on to the promises in the storms, the upheavals, the cloudy days, when we desperately want to see but can't. The promises of God are still there and will be fulfilled. Like salmon and Rahab, you will find yourself in the promised land and eating from the produce of the land. Let me end with this, Hebrews 6, 12. Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who by faith and patience inherited the promise. These are our promises for each one of us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my sisters. Oh, Lord, you know those days when the promises become so cloudy, when it seems that the storm is greater than the promise, when it seems as if the promises are so far away and our vision is so obscured, when our heads are down and we can't look up because of the oppression, Lord, we pray that you would use these times to increase our faith. Lord, that we would get such a grip like Eliezer and Beniah on the promises of God, Lord, that they couldn't pry those promises out of our hand, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would give us the vision and the heart, Lord, to see your promises afar off and embrace them and inherit them by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.